This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, November 12, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. Tea Partiers don't have a positive agenda to sell, and that, says Daniel McCarthy, editor of the American Conservative Magazine, is a big problem for Tea Partiers if they're at all interested in governing. The establishment GOP, he argues, isn't yet ready for the most important debate. What is government for? Over the last 60 years, really, the Republican presidents who've actually been successful at getting elected have oftentimes not governed as conservatives. And the uh, heroes of the conservative movement have oftentimes even failed, fallen short of uh, attaining the uh, Republican nomination. So Ronald Reagan is unique because he's the one guy who is a conservative grassroots hero and who also actually gets the nomination and becomes elected as president and serves uh, two terms. So he's unique. And I think that uh, there's a reason for his uniqueness, which is that basically uh, in, you know, in the late 1970s, the Keynesian consensus in the United States and in fact, a kind of big government socialist consensus all around the world had started to break down. And Ronald Reagan was the right leader at the right moment to take advantage of that in the United States. And you also saw um, a sort of uh, renaissance of a great many um, sort of conservative passions or at least passions that were not considered fully enlightened. Uh, which had been thought to be sort of um, passe over the last 50 years or so before Ronald Reagan, namely the forces of religion, religious fundamentalism in particular, and nationalism. And Reagan and the grassroots movements that supported Reagan, uh, they were all able to take advantage of this and use it to get elected. Um, But that moment is now starting to pass. Um, The Keynesian consensus has been dead now for about 35 years. And as a result, trying to revive a movement whose primary power is its critique uh, is not necessarily going to succeed. Okay, so uh, you argue that the Tea Partiers, uh, for all of their uh, per legitimate complaints, uh, aren't offering much more than that. That's right. I think the Tea Party's weakness is that it's very similar, actually, to the conservative movement as it has developed over the last 60-odd years. And that movement has um, had a critique that is much more powerful than its positive agenda. All right, so... What what's the plan then? I mean, for for Tea Partiers, it seems like in general we would presume, I think, mostly that Tea Partiers are free market types, um, and uh, if you are a someone who prefers big government, uh, someone who prefers the programs that that go along with big government, you've automatically got an argument on your side, which is visible results from an intentional. Uh, diversion of resources out of the private sector into this program. And free market types uh, often struggle with making the case that despite the fact that markets work very well throughout the world, uh, making that an agenda as part of a campaign. That's true. And I think in general, they need a positive vision that has a clear answer to the question, what is the state for? What is government for? And you do find answers to that on the right and among Tea Partiers and certainly among uh, sort of the more theoretically inclined uh, grassroots elements on the right. So, for example, um, you know, among arguably the most rigorous libertarians. You have a sort of anarcho-capitalist utopian dream of uh, having no state whatsoever, just letting the pure free market run its course. And then on the sort of other extreme, you have uh, people on the religious right who believe in what often gets called theonomy, which is uh, sort of um, 
the Bible as law, for example. So you have those two extremes who actually, for all their weaknesses, do at least have a vision of the good and can explain what they see as government's role in the world being. The trouble is that either of those extremes can't sell that kind of message to the ordinary American. So the right is left wondering, how can you reconcile these two absolutely irreconcilable uh, utopian visions, which can't be done, of course, uh, and in the failure of, uh, you know, in being able, unable to do that, what kind of positive vision can you create that's, that's in the middle, that isn't uh, one of these extremes or the others? What is a purpose of government that would actually um, allow you to uh, inspire the American people to elect you and then you could actually translate into some sort of program? It wouldn't have to be uh, – we're not aiming here for rationalism in politics, for having a minute uh, vision of what we're going to achieve. But it has to be some sort of poetic vision at least of um, what can be done with, uh, with power. What's a – new Republican, somebody who's going to sort of knock the edges off of uh, any of the – either of these particularized visions of what the world should look like, be it uh, more uh, religious conservative or libertarian. What does that look like? Well, I think the uh, the virtue of the Tea Party is that it does have this entrepreneurial edge to it. It's shaking up the Republican establishment enough that um, you're starting to get new permutations and configurations arising. And that's where I think someone like Rand Paul is actually very interesting because clearly he starts off with a set of assumptions, for example, about the Civil Rights Act, which he then finds are untenable and that he winds up walking back. But in the process of doing that, he then I think starts to sort of broaden his mind and look at um, you know ideas from other sectors of American life, whether it's the foreign policy of George Kennan, whether it's uh, any number of other things, and he tries to uh, you know create some sort of new configuration that is still still has a very strong libertarian component, but that is also able to talk about foreign policy or maybe um, uh, you know sort of social issues or at least um, community uh, structure in a way that libertarians are often unaccustomed to doing, and I think. Mike Lee is also very promising in this regard. We've seen his talks at AEI and Heritage uh, where he's put a great deal of emphasis on a kind of rugged communitarianism. Uh, it's not anti-individualist but it's a kind of individualism that emphasizes the combination of individuality with, uh, with group effort as well, with family and with civil society. Compare and contrast that with somebody like Chris Christie. Well, Chris Christie is a good example of how Republicans can succeed at the state level without necessarily having to address these theoretical problems in their ideology. So Chris Christie, I think, is very well loved because he's seen as someone who is quite pragmatic, someone who is able to uh, get results in terms of just um, sort of reining in some of the administrative excesses of the New Jersey government, whether it's uh, uh, you know public teachers, for example, whether it's any number of other things, government employees. Um, you see that Republicans in many states have actually had success with this. But in terms of translating that into a national vision, it becomes very difficult because while it certainly is the case that the federal bureaucracy, for example, can be trimmed, it's not the case that the federal bureaucracy is the largest budget item in our uh, federal government. Uh, you have entitlements, you have the defense uh, apparatus, you have any number of things which um, are not as easily addressed as simply saying there are too many people on, on the payrolls or that uh, our schools aren't performing well enough. It doesn't seem that Chris Christie is asking your question, which is what is the state for? That's pretty much true. I think uh, you know when you're dealing with state government, that's much less of a question uh, because people there um, see the state government as being something that's there to provide a certain number of services, whether it's the DMV, whether it's uh, you know even state level welfare, things like that, uh, and also of course maintaining a, a basic sort of law and order um, position. 
but beyond that, um, there's not much of a question. Whereas with the national government, you get into these very – you get into questions that very quickly become very cosmic, uh, whether it's foreign policy, where the question is, uh, you know, how are we meant to order our relations with other nations in the world? And it's a question that has no easy answer. Um, or whether it's, you know, some of these more fundamental questions of justice uh, that then become important uh, when it comes to, you know, appointing Supreme Court justices or any number of other things. So there really are, I think, some deep issues that the federal government winds up having to address or at least touch upon, which uh, state governments are often able to leave unanswered. Now, uh, specifically with respect to foreign policy, and I'm going to continue along this line of sort of Rand Paul, Mike Lee versus views of uh, of Chris Christie, there's no indication that Chris Christie is somebody who is going to challenge Republican Party orthodoxy when, with respect to foreign policy. No, that's completely right. And in fact, uh, Chris Christie, uh, to the extent that there may be any reformist element in his foreign policy, I think it only comes from the fact that he's smart enough to realize that the last decade has been a tremendous loss for the Republican Party as a result of its overcommitment to a very militarized foreign policy. So I do you know, suspect that at some level, Christie must be pragmatic enough to recognize that. But in terms of most of his public statements, I mean, there's really not much uh, grounds for thinking that he's going to make a course correction. Whereas with people like Rand Paul and Mike Lee, well, and, and Rand, I think, much more than Mike Lee, you do see this sense that uh, there is a need for a different foreign policy than the one that the Republican Party has had, certainly since uh, George W. Bush and arguably going back well before that as well. Do you think that the Republican Party, the grassroots of the Republican Party are prepared for that kind of uh, departure from effectively a decade of war? You know, in a weird way, I think they are. The trouble is that the public spokesmen of the right, uh, whether it's magazines like National Review, whether it's Fox News, uh, they will put the worst possible spin on any kind of reformist foreign policy right from the get-go and that tends to confuse the grassroots. So I think the grassroots realize that um, you know we, we didn't gain anything from being involved in Iraq for 10 years, that uh, Afghanistan has gone on far too long. The grassroots are aware of this and you even find certainly among the Tea Party a desire to rein in the defense budget. Uh, but as soon as you get uh, you know, someone like Justin Amash, for example, who starts raising some of these issues or talking about uh, NSA surveillance, for example, uh, the Republican establishment and the conservative movement establishment, Fox News, National Review, etc., they start taking shots at the guy and they start saying, well, this guy sounds like a liberal, doesn't he? He sounds like someone who might be working with uh, Ron Wyden rather than with John Bolton. So I think the grassroots have the potential to be mobilized on these issues, but it's a matter of breaking through the wall that's uh, put up by uh, the sort of movement establishment. Daniel McCarthy is editor of the American Conservative magazine. You can read more on the ongoing struggle over policy within the GOP at our website, cato.org.